I can't remember what the original post was. It had something to do with gin and tonic though, right? Was it gin tea or was it waltz? Because I remember posts. Oh, yes. It, it was about gin and tonic that you oh, posted I was, I was, about gin and tonic. And then somehow, <laughs> somehow someone introduced waltz into your thread. It's sort of like. It was magic. <laughs> waltz can end up anywhere. Welcome, everyone, to what we hope is a new series on the Duck of Minerva, in which we bring IR scholars and practitioners together in small groups to discuss topics either occurring in the world today or in the hallowed halls of academia with respect to international relations. We are shamelessly stealing from the many podcasts that rely on alcohol to fuel their discussions. Our two contributors today are gin and tonic aficionados, as I am. So I was very happy when they brought this suggestion to me. I, by the way, am drinking an Irish gin, uh, Glendalough, with uh, Fever Tree Light gin and tonic because I am not getting any younger and so with that introduction, I want to throw it to our two contributors to introduce themselves and maybe mention what they're drinking before we get to the topic of realism in international relations, scholarship and theory today. So sh who wants to start? <laughs> Should we flip a coin? Alphabetical? We'll start. We'll go alphabetical. Anne. Okay. Hi, I am Anne Harrington. I am a senior lecturer for people on the U.S. side of the Atlantic that translates into being an associate professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Cardiff University. So I got my PhD in the U.S. at the University of Chicago and did a couple of postdocs here before getting a job on the other side of the ocean. Oh, and what am I drinking? <laughs> a lovely tipple of Hendrix with uh, Indian fever tree tonic. And um, I like to dress mine with basil and grapefruit in the summer. Wow. Fantastic. Fabulous. Right. I'm Jacqueline Hazelton. I have a BA and a master's from the University of Chicago in English literature. After a career as an international journalist with the Associated Press, I went back to Chicago for a master's from the Committee on International Relations and then did my PhD with Bob Art at Brandeis in the politics department. I learned my trade in the brown bag workshops at Chicago's program on international security policy, MIT security studies program, and the Kennedy School's international security program. So that a certain amount of bias may show in our discussion. <laughs> I am drinking also an Irish gin, although I don't remember the name of it, and also a specialty tonic, although I can't remember the name of it either. It's not Fever Tree. It comes in the little cans. I prefer Fever Tree, but the liquor store was all out. Oh. And it has a lot of lime in it and ice cubes, which really make the drink. Yeah, I have, yeah, I have ice in mine, or I did have it. Now it's just uh, mostly gin, so I'm quite happy about that. Okay, well, that's really great. So uh, I understand this this conversation really got started between the two of you over a Facebook post that, as I understand, originated with the discussion on gin and tonic, which is which I'm happy to hear. But then Waltz made his way into it somehow. And so I thought we would start. You guys are coming at this this the subject of of IR theory in very different ways. And, and I thought we'd start with a sort of maybe a broad discussion about what your perspective on paradigms and IR 
what role they have, what role should they have? Are they are they useful? I mean, we've we have a, a bit of a paradigm fatigue, at least setting in over the last few years with the end of IR theory in the EJR a few years ago, and uh, uh, you know, sort of this 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 the movement in IR towards what seems to be middle range theorization. So maybe we don't need paradigms at all. Maybe we don't need to talk about realism because nobody needs them or uses them anymore. So what are your perspectives? Um, so this conversation got revived on Facebook. Um, Jill uh, has the distinction of being the only person that I've ever met on Facebook and then had become a friend in real life rather than the other way around. Um, so uh, the first time we met in person, actually over uh, drinks at a lovely little bar in Toronto, um, I said something that I thought was wholly 100% uncontroversial <laughs> about how um, there had been this transition point at the end of the Cold War, which had really challenged the legitimacy of the dominant form of neorealism in the US and had created this sense of openness in terms of theorizing and a breaking open of the kind of paradigm wars that had been going on between um, liberal institutionalism and realism and at the time Marxism and that that had given way to this sense of openness and pluralism but that it was a short-lived sense of pluralism because in the U.S. context the brand of state-centric constructivism that is usually associated with um, my dissertation advisor Alex Wendt stepped in and really propped up a new form of a kind of tripartite paradigm war, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this um, kind of reinforced realism's ordering function within the field, right? It's the first of the three paradigms, but now the three paradigms, rather than being realism, liberal institutionalism, and Marxism become realism, liberal institutionalism, institutionalism and constructivism. Um, and this was felt as a loss to a lot of critical scholars who felt that um, this sense of openness and inclusion had given way to having a boundary reinscribed within the US um, discourse, and I think also within the US job market, more important. Um, but this was something that I thought was, I was just telling a story that was a story that everyone knew, right? <laughs> but it wasn't at all. <laughs> and hence our conversation about um, realism and its role and whether or not it is dominant or ever was, um, what role the paradigm wars play in shaping debates. Um, was born. And what's your, what was your response to this, uh, Jacqueline, if you remember? <laughs> uh, I was fascinated. There is a lot of, I guess what Anne calls the sociology of IR, and I might also think of it as uh, just the context in a simpler term that is new for me. I didn't study political science in um, college, the way so many of my colleagues did. I came to it anew. I was, I was a blank slate. I had a vast amount of empirical knowledge and no theoretical knowledge whatsoever. Um, so hearing these stories from Anne was absolutely fascinating. And I'm still struggling to understand some of the boundaries and arguments and implications. But the questions that Anne has uh, set up for this discussion, I think, are important ones. And for me, the most important question about the paradigms is what they're good for. For me, theories are only important insofar as they help us understand reality. 
I'm waltzing in that way, um, probably in other ways as well, although I suppose it's old fashioned of me. Um, I don't think there is any independent true truth or reality that we can discern. All there is is what we make of what we're able to try to understand as clumsily as, as it may be. I teach the paradigms as tools. Do you extend that any of them or their assumptions about the world help you understand the phenomenon of interest? That's what matters. So was the story that Anne told at all contentious for you? I mean, was it was it just a fascinating insight on a pers the perspective of theoretical development in international relations? Or did you feel that, you know, well, realism is the top dog, the reference point, right? Every, you, you start teaching IR theory to undergrads, you start with realism and you work your way down, so to speak. That, you know, realism is the point of departure for a scientific objectivist study of international relations and everybody else either measures against it in opposition or in in conjunction right does was that at all contentious for you or you're just like well yeah of course well i would separate the way you put it just now from the way i took it in when i initially heard this story i i'm familiar with um debates um that horrendous series of letters between Walton Mearsheimer and Lake, for example, about who will ever hire a realist at the EJIR article, which I think makes important points, and we can come back to that. I boggle a little bit at the idea that realism is the dominant paradigm. I don't see a great deal of explicitly realist work in journals. Um, I wonder if in some way, when we talk about the paradigm wars, we're not talking about grand theory so much as we're talking about methodology. Okay. So questions about uh, inference rather than the, how, how we achieve uh, knowledge, quantitative, qualitative, that sort of thing, rather than the pursuit of power, the pursuit of wealth or something else? Well, this is this is one of the questions that this whole discussion raises. What kind of realism are we talking about? And what do uh, scholars who whose hackles really rise when it comes to realism find so objectionable? Right. Um, in, in terms of whether the issue is grand theories or methodologies, I'm much more aware of the lack of publications on security, especially hardcore security, and sure. the lack of publications that are qualitatively based than I am. Uh, that seems to me much more problematic than whether or not realism is dominant, because I just don't see realism as dominant. And do, and do you see realism as dominant? Uh, I I actually do, and I see it as dominant in the sense that it's hard to imagine getting a PhD in international relations without learning about core realist concepts mm -hmm. like anarchy, like state-centric theorizing, mm -hmm. like the balance of power. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very easy to imagine getting through an entire PhD at a major university in the U.S. without ever reading Marx, um, without being introduced to feminist theorizing on mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. um, without even really understanding what the critical community has to say about state-centric Wentian constructivism, and that there might be a hardcore um, debate within what others would lump together as um, a bunch of approaches that all center some sort of social construction as being um, core to their theoretical con constructs. And so that's the sense in which I would see realism as being dominant. I experience it 
so in a sociological sense is being very similar to the way in which uh, as a queer woman, I experience needing to understand and being able to navigate a um, what you know has mostly been and is changing, I think, but has mostly been a very male dominated discipline, right? So I need to learn all about how to navigate these relationships with these male professors, but they don't have to learn very much at all about what it's like to be a queer woman circles, right? And so I think that's the sense in which I experience realism as dominant. I can recite waltz backwards and forwards, and it's partly because I took on the project of being very interested in critiquing some of those ideas um, and in particular understanding a certain kind of juncture where certain schools of thought within realism couldn't couldn't contend with or come to terms with nuclear weapons and Waltz could. So I became very interested in dissecting those ideas. But even in the absence of that, I can get up and teach realism without a problem. Sure. But I'm not sure a lot of my colleagues who don't identify themselves as critical scholars either feel the need to or could up could get up and teach the kind of critical theories that are my bread and butter. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's pretty fair. That matches that matches up pretty well with my experience in the discipline as well. I, I don't even think you need to go as far as critical theories. I think you can go extend that argument to any kind of, any form of constructivism beyond Wentz, uh, you know, very state centric model of, cons- of the international system. I don't think a lot of IR scholars in the United States go past that, right? It's, it's forms this triumvirate that I think you've identified quite nicely. And, and then going past that is just, there's no, there is either nothing out there or there's not much point in doing so because it's too complicated for the t- students or it doesn't matter. It's not empirically relevant, whatever the rationalization is. Uh, I think a lot of scholars are stuck in, in that sort of trifecta and they leave it there, right? So even uh, securitization theory or anything, even moderately moving beyond that just doesn't get anywhere in the United States. What, what do you guys think? What is the role then of paradigms in the field? If it's, if it's a tool or whatever, it's doing, something else is going on as well. Jacqueline. I think um, the problem that you both have identified has two different analytical strands that we need to look at. And the first one is how we raise those coming up behind us, the process of professionalization in grad school. I'm horrified to hear that many departments don't pay any attention to anything but the realist paradigm. But here's where I branch off into the other analytical question. And that is, especially because of what you've identified as the problem of getting a job as a constructivist. Can we distinguish between the difficulty of getting a job as a constructivist and the difficulty of getting a job as someone who doesn't do quantitative analysis? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we can part. I don't know how we disaggregate those two things. And my sense of the people who get hired or the kind of work that gets a job is that is quantitative. Mm-hmm. Um, a certain amount of modeling. Uh, natural experiments and other kind of exper- experimental work is trendy right now. Uh, there are probably things coming up that I don't even know about. Um, but all that seems to me to have to do with epistemology, with methodology, more than the paradigms. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Ann? Um, I'm, I'm on, I'm a two minds on this. And I, I do want to clear, I want to clarify in response to one thing that Jill said, I wouldn't say that all that most departments in the US only teach realism. Um, like, I do think that there is at least some 
pluralism, and it, it, this actually opens up the question of um, this idea of can you even always determine what is realist, right? There's a lot of subject matter-based teaching. Um, people carve up their intro classes in all different ways, but there's a lot of subject matter-based teaching with mid-range theorizing that gets taught, which may or may not be realist in orientation, right? Um, uh, so I don't want to give a, a kind of overdrawn straw man uh, account. Um, but this idea of um, how realism or realist scholars themselves feel marginalized by the dominance of quantitative methods is another really fascinating um, sociological story about the development of the discipline, right? Sure. Uh, where we have the, the whole perestroika movement within the discipline that is um, not far off in terms of timeline from the end of the Cold War. Um, and a number of very prominent realists, but also um, comparative um, scholars were very active in pushing back as what they saw as the the sort of science, how would I say that, scientification? I mean, the, the move towards um, rationalism and an individualist ontology, right? So the idea that rational methods typically take the individual, whether that be a person or a state Right, and they set them up as um, actors within a paradigm, and look for laws that emerge. Right, these um, patterns. In yeah, and yeah, they look for the patterns, but the patterns are emerging from the this accumulation of individual activities, typically. Um, so I find a couple of things interesting of, about this. Um, I. I do think it's very interesting that a lot of realists who would be considered very conservative in other ways were actually very out front in pushing back. Um, I guess it is also a, a form of conservatism on the, on the imposition of these scientific methods. And that there's actually a very long tradition of that that goes back to problems that, that uh, Morgenthau had with not only the um, importation of some of those mathematical methods into realism in the 60s and 70s, but actually pushing back on exactly those tendencies in Waltz's own work, right? Um, so I find it really interesting that there's a sense that, um, like from where I sit, what I would say is that there's a sense that because they feel as though they aren't the top dog, they're marginalized, but they're still in the fight, right? Like they're still not can't counting the number of schools that it's realistic to get hired at in one hand and basically deciding that they'd rather take their chances on working in the UK. Sure, sure. But I mean, this brings up this issue of theorizing in the discipline in general, right? So th this is the complaint that Mearsheimer and Walt had whenever it was they wrote that article about, you know, we have to get back to theorizing and there's too much dominance of empirics. And by empirics, they don't mean case studies. They mean exactly what you guys are talking about. Data-driven research as opposed to theory-driven research. Right, right. The large-end regression-style methodology is driving the research agenda rather than theory driving acquisition of methods. And the question then becomes, well, these, th these regression models are still relying on a theory, right? They still rely on a theory. If nothing else, they rely on what uh, Rousseau, or not Rousseau, um, Rosenau, Rousseau, what am I talking about? Rosenau <laughs> talked about they they have a pre-theory, right? They have a sense as to what variables they should go look at, what things they think are important in the world. 
And that pre-theory is there's something going on there, right? So even if they are pretending or trying to be entirely inductive and just, you know, trawling uh, for the data and looking to see what emerges a la some kind of, of you know, al artificial algorithmic thing where you just look for patterns and go with it, they, they're not, right? They're not gathering all the data. They have some preconceived notion about what's important, what's not. And that's informed by a theory. And so do our theories, are these sort of grand paradigmatic theories still there? They're just buried because nobody really wants to talk about them anymore. They want to talk about their flashy regressions technique. <laughs> yeah, I am struck by your point at a foundational level. There are, this is something that I emphasize to students and that I would like to see more attention to in scholarly work, there is, there is no non-normative choice. Everything is a choice. What are the variables you're going to look for? How are you going to process them? Um, what are the assumptions that directed your choice of variables, what are the choices that determined the subject that you're interested in, your phenomenon of interest? Um, I'm not sure how much that has to do with the paradigms, so much as it has to do with something that I don't see recognized. It's like with um, artificial intelligence. If all of the decisions that the machine makes, if we're going to talk about it as a machine, are built in by humans with their biases, with their assumptions. So I, I think this may be more fundamental as a problem for the subdiscipline or the discipline uh, if you're in Britain. Um, this may be a more fundamental problem about what it means to study a phenomenon of interest, then it has to do with the paradigms themselves. Are you saying that if you are, for instance, using a realist theory, you'd be more aware of the normative implications no. Of, no. of your choices? Or like, so there's a distinction or an assumption that you're making in there that I'm having trouble identifying that is something around this notion of the problem of doing method-driven research and how that differs from doing theory-driven research. And I would also then want to introduce the idea of doing question-driven research as a third possibility. Yeah. I think I'm equating a reliance on quantitative methods as uh, and I have plenty of quant friends who are not going to be happy with this characterization. And we can certainly discuss it further, but I'm, I think I'm equating as, uh, well, Mearsheimer did in the EJIR piece, the belief that somehow statistics are truer, are more independent of human choice. That's something that I perceive is going on, and I could be completely wrong, but that's something I see that, that troubles me, that is previous to the question of paradigms. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. So you're saying it's not that realism escapes this problem, it's that realists um, may or may not be more aware of it, but we, uh, we um, attribute that characteristic to these quant-driven methods as sort of as a society, maybe? That it's no, not at all. I'm not in any way trying to bring realism into this particular moment in our discussion. That's not intended as a defensive realism by any means. So maybe I've lost the point. But what I was trying to get to was what is troubling to me intellectually about data-driven research. And as an example, one of the things that I work on is military intervention, counterinsurgency. 
and a tremendous amount of contemporary work on counterinsurgency is based on the vast amount of data that the Department of Defense has collected in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are several problems with that. One is that the data is incredibly noisy. Another is that the, the data is neither valid nor reliable. A third is that you can't generalize from either of those cases because they're outliers. And I see no recognition of any of those problems in the work that puts this kind of data at the forefront. So I'm defending realism so much as complaining about certain choices by scholars who use certain types of methodology. So, yeah, so I think I see what, what's, what's happened here. So, Anne, you and I are approaching this question as either critical or constructive as scholars. And so we're looking at it, we're saying realism runs the show here. And Jacqueline's saying, is it realism as much as it is a methods? There's a pre-theory that's informing these quantitative studies. And that pre-theory, I suspect, is pretty realist in its orientation. But that's not what's driving professional disciplinary career dynamics in the field, Jacqueline's arguing. She's arguing it's the quantitative study that's drive. It's the quantitative methods that are driving it. And so this gets back to the point. But the question she asked about is it constructivism slash critical approaches, or is it the fact that you guys don't really use numbers? Military power oriented intuition drives a lot of the empirical studies. Now. Does that in, is that intuition? Does that intuition nicely line up with the available data? That's the point you just made, Jacqueline. Right? That who has the data? Well, it's it's the Department of Defense. If you're going to look for if you're going to understand outcomes, you're looking at you're looking at the wielders of military power for the data, right? And so you'd really have to undertake some very serious theoretical self-examination in order to use that data in a way that doesn't kind of line up with at least some basic predisposition of realism towards the international system, right? Well, this takes us to the big question that we've only touched on it, which is what is realism? You're implying that realism is fundamentally about military power, and that's not how I conceptualize it. And one of the problems with talking about realism with a broad brush is that there are multiple flavors. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should start, go back to first principles. What do we think realism is? I lecture on this at uh, Columbia every fall for several years along with Dick Betts. And I, it posits that the international system is in market. There is no global 911 to call for help. This is a persistent and consistent state of affairs because state interests preclude yielding significant power to another actor, particularly when it comes to security. Uh, states may or may not be predatory or aggressive, depending on what flavor of realism you adhere to. Uh, states may seek security, they may seek hegemony, but if they seek hegemony, they're always destined to fail, and this is a tragedy, right? Um, I think there's a a realist tenet that one cannot read others' will, one can more easily estimate capabilities. And Michael Beckley, who I think is an offensive realist, has done a very nice job of looking in a more holistic way at China's capabilities. States guard themselves against aggression by internal and external balancing. The top state interest is survival. This responsibility to serve state interests implies nothing about governance within states. That's simply outside the paradigm. It doesn't have to be outside the study of realists, but it's outside that paradigm per se. States are on their own, but that doesn't mean they cannot cooperate. And they do do so. There is cooperation as well as conflict in, in all of these relationships. I think that's an assumption or a tenet. Um, Realism has implications for foreign policy choices, but it isn't intended to explain them. And I think there's an emphasis in realist thought on the is rather than the ought. 
and yes, this is a normative position. I don't privilege uh, the tenets of realism in any way. I focus on it myself and others have to make their own choices about what's most useful. It, it's that Chicago attitude of what a hundred flowers bloom that I was based on. I don't see it as a zero sum game. So I'll give my answer to what's realism. It's a more philosophical answer. Realism is an orientation towards the world that sees it as mind independent. It sees it also as having truths that are not immediately observable that can be discovered through essentially positing the existence of non-observables and seeing those mechanisms through proxies. And it also, because it has these first two features, is transhistorical. So it also is an approach to the study of the world that is one that finds laws that it posits you can project back through time, right? And so if we tie this definition back to the conversation that we were having previously about the quant-driven um, methods, uh, I think a lot of the problems that realists have with this kind of method and data-driven theorizing is because a lot of scholars who do that kind of work tend to privilege what is empirically observable over unobservable or not direct, only indirectly, indirectly observable forms of knowledge. And so a lot of differences that you have between what to me from the outside look at very closely related, um, you know, it, it feels like an internal, almost an internal fight to me, right? You're all rationalists and you're all arguing with each other over basically this question of inference and, and how far and how deep can inference go. The reason, and, and then, you know, throughout time, we've had different iterations of realist theory, right? Um, as it applies specifically to the study of international politics, right? And, and that kind of, you know, centers us historically in the 20th century, more or less. Apart from that, you have a whole plurality of approaches that don't operate from those fundamental assumptions about the observable world, right? And one of the things that is really interesting to me, for instance, about like a lot of the work that you talk about in, as being data-driven, um, you, because you study counterinsurgency, is that a fair characterization? I want to make sure I, I study. What? Say it again. It's one of the things I study. Yes. So, and I don't, I don't, I don't study that. So, but I say nuclear things, and insofar as there are a lot of people who do a lot of um, data-driven work on, for instance, causes of nuclear proliferation, right? they have a very robust debate amongst themselves, even within the people who do the data-driven work. But what I see is that a lot of that work and the thing that I'm really interested in personally in my own research is how that work gets legitimated with relationship to realist theory, right? How realist theory actually changes in various ways to bring itself into alignment with some of the work that's being done 
that comes out of basic deterrence theory, right? So deterrence theory starts out as this really data poor field because nuclear weapons are new and we don't know anything about them. So it's all based on assumptions and models, but fast forward 75 years, and this is the week of the 75th, or 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombings. Fast forward 75 years and suddenly we have a lot of data. And so people are able to test some of those models against the data. But one of the interesting things is how realism shifts to encompass those and how from a perspective of someone who might not want to be looking for transhistorical laws, who might want to be looking for historically specific explanations for what we see is happening and is possible, those that those are sort of of, of one world together, right? Even though one of them privileges uh, a certain approach to expanding their N, basically, right? And the other looks at it through a more sort of deductive and case study driven approach to security. It's actually sort of, it's surprising how little of the work that's done from a critical nuclear studies perspective makes its way into that debate in the US, even though I would say it's fairly robust in Europe. I had two questions. Um... Let's see if I can remember them. The first was, you talk about realism adjusting itself. It sounds like you're making a normative judgment, but I'm not sure, and if you are, why? The second question, um, you're talking about how other views of it in the, this particular study area are legitimized. Can you put that in the active voice so I understand who is doing the legitimizing, is this journal editors, is this um, hiring committees? Does this come back to how we raise the people coming after us into the profession? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my interest in the idea that there's a shift that happens with, with realism um, in the face of the fact that Morgenthau can't reconcile himself to the existence of nuclear weapons um, my interest in that is more just in the idea that if you are interested in historically specific explanations, um, if you're exist, if you're interested in sort of uh, a kind of historical sociological approach, which I would say a lot of critical scholars take, then the fact that the theories change to update themselves with with respect to changing circumstance is telling part of the that historical story. So is um, this a Captain Vasquez's perspective on realism that it's a degenerate uh, form of thought? <laughs> no, I don't think that, I don't think it's a de degenerate form of thought at all. I, I think it's, um, it's historically specific and it does historically specific work for people in power at any one point in time. Right. So there's um, there's a mismatch here, right? Because Vasquez is assessing it in the context of these theories of scientific progress, right? And what Anne is saying is that there th those aren't even valid in the first instance, if I understand what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. So they're there's they're not even they're not even talking to each other. Uh, this idea of a degenerating research program is just not something that Anne's even speaking to. Do I understand you correctly, Anne? Yeah, yeah. I just, I just find um, how the change happens in and of itself interesting. Um, all all and, theories are like this. All, yeah. all theories. They're all historically spe uh, uh, specific to mm -hmm. their time and to the, you know, the various ebbs and flows of power in the context in which they're formulated and, and promulgated. Right. Yes. Yes. That's that's my understanding of how theory works. And it's not to say that there is no such thing as science or that everything's relative. It's that everything is historically specific in various ways. And everything reflects existing social structures in various ways, right? So in other words, I just don't buy into 
I don't buy into a trans historical project, which would say the principles of, of realism go back to two cities. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm like, those are city states. They have their own practices, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that, that's a different epoch and we can project our practices back onto them, but that's not how I, that's not a, a type of exercise I would consider particularly useful, useful. Um, but it is a way that certain realists like to legitimate their positions. So the second question, Jill, if I understand correctly, has to do with the sociology of the discipline and ask it again for me because I want to make sure I, I'm answering it correctly. Like I've understood it. What? Well, it's, it's a question based in my not being sure I understood something that you said okay. for greater specificity. So let's just hit this ball back and forth, this confusion. <laughs> When you talk about certain views or certain uh, paradigms or certain ways of doing scholarly research involving the world as being legitimated and others not being legitimated, it immediately raises the question of who are the gatekeepers and how do they do this? Yeah. And so I wonder if that question takes us back to the gatekeeping in political science departments and how we're raising our children, so to speak, or mm -hmm. whether it's the entire power structure or if there is some mid-level uh, characterization of who decides what's legitimate and what's not. Yeah. So, yeah, so I am, I think I am thinking about what makes it onto syllabi, what makes it into journals. And Dan Nexon, I've heard him say a few different times, something to the effect of um, asking someone to defend or justify their approach is a way of marginalizing that approach, right? So if even to get your foot in the door, you have to start off by saying that this approach is in and of itself legitimate, as opposed to saying, there's this vibrant realist debate, and I'm going to um, come into this vibrant debate, and I'm going to tell you how we can map the current anomaly within a realist framework. And it's already presumed that doing that is a valid exercise, and that it contributes to making more knowledge in the world. So that's, I think, behind this question you're asking. Now, one of the things that was so interesting about the perestroika movement and the idea that, that quantitative methods get privileged was precisely that uh, realists who rely on qualitative methods, we're facing exactly this kind of legitimation crisis with respect to the major journals in the American political science scene, right? It was precisely the fact that, and it wasn't only, right? It wasn't only IR realists, it was also political theorists, right? They were, they were facing precisely- And comparativists, this right? That were, that were coming at it from a qualitative or case-based, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm thinking of James Scott at the, you know, who said he never reads APSR or something along those lines. This mm -hmm. raises a cluster of important questions that, forgive me, have to do with causation and coding. Um, first of all, there are pods of knowledge or cultures of knowledge within every discipline and sub-discipline and I think that maybe we can characterize that as generally a problem without necessarily saying it's the realists are the worst. Um, at least I'm not hearing evidence that realists are the worst. 
I think there are problems that you're identifying that are specific to a number of subcultures within IR or within political science that have to do with those pods of knowledge and a sense within each pod about what's interesting and what's valuable or legitimate. But again, I'm not sure empirically, forgive me, if, if the problems that we're identifying are specific to realist or specific to the realist paradigm, I think we're talking about a broader problem that besets any group of, or large group of professionals in terms of what they consider, as I said, interesting and, and valuable. Well, I I don't know if I, I can chime in here because I, 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 I'm sure Anne has some personal experience with this as well, but, but I know I do. Um, so I think, I mean, I think Anne's point, I think, is very well taken that from the standpoint of those who are outside, it looks like a really a familial fight between sort of quantitative, highly quantitative, more data-driven folks who may have a pre-theoretical predisposition towards a realist kind of uh, a conception of the world and more theoretically driven realists. It's without a doubt, I, I'm, I believe that more qualitative case-based scholars like Mearsheimer or Walt do feel marginalized. But I also think that they're of a piece, right, with this conception of science and the mode of inquiry that drives quantitative large-n analysis, more or less. Is that fair, Anne? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's more or less my, my experience. Of, so one thing I don't want to um, let either of us escape is describing our approaches. That's a good way to wrap things up. You want to go first or shall I? I'll let you go first. I went first at the beginning. <laughs> okay. I study compellents, um, primarily as state efforts to advance their own security within other states through the use of force. I consider myself a realist, probably more defensive than offensive. And really, we're all neoclassical realists now in terms of considering domestic drivers of foreign policy. I'm a methodological agnostic. Use what works best for your question. One thing I do regret, and we haven't raised this point particularly in talking about methodology yet, I'm very sad to see the declining attention to research design and journal articles. I use qualitative methods, primarily deeply researched comparative historical case studies that draw on archival material, interviews, work in comparative politics, history, and other disciplines. I'm interested in causal processes and mechanisms, which puts me in one particular camp. I think that our tools of social science are weak, but they're all we have. Those who find them annoyingly inadequate should do something else. Um, a rational or rationalist approach for me does not mean formal modeling. It does not mean homo economicus. It's something more like that of Marchesan, a broader definition of recognizing that what people want and value is what they want and value. And we don't get to judge whether it's what they should want or not. Um, I also like Ashtash Barney's uh, position in nationalism, ethnic conflict, and nationality that goods like dignity, self-respect, and recognition, recognition are also important elements of self-interest. Uh, so when I, at a formative time in my, uh, in my own intellectual development, when I was trying to come up with 
ideas about and feel entitled, I think, to write about things from a perspective that was um, different. Uh, I was working with Alex Went and Iris Young, and Iris Marion Young is a feminist theorist um, who uh, I would say would write in a continental um, tradition, broadly speaking. And, you know, we were taught KKV as if it were some sort of Bible, basically, right? And Iris was a political philosopher, right? And what she said to me was, study anything you want. And the only rule is you have to be able to tell people how to know when you're wrong. And epistemologically, methodologically, the rest of it doesn't matter, right? So I engaged in a defetishizing critique of nuclear weapons. And um, that was my first project. And since then, I've gone on to do other things that I would call more problem driven than anything else. Just things that are of interest to me and I think will be of interest to other people. Um, so right now I am working with an economist to make one of those dreaded models um, that, that uh, you could potentially input uh, mathematical data into it. Um, because the defetishizing critique led me to a vision of of how um, nuclear diplomacy works and it seemed appealing to push the economic analogy further and work with an economist to do that right so um when i express a commitment to pluralism or a commitment to um to being supportive of multiple approaches it's not just that I have some sort of idea that things should be multi-methodological. Um, I'm also doing an interview project for the first time, right? Which is very much about the kind of grounded um, methodology where you allow the themes to emerge out of the interviews themselves, right? So as different problems present themselves, I'm open both the different epistemological and methodological approaches that seem to be most appropriate to answering the question at hand. Um, and so in that sense, I feel like having a training that gives me the ability to not only know how to do a certain kind of international relations or a certain kind of political science, but a training that also allows me to understand the epistemological and methodological foundations of it um, and be kind of wide ranging enough to feel comfortable tackling things that otherwise would feel impossible practically is um, something that I think is of real value and that if a discipline is too disciplinary in not allowing people to quote unquote make up their own methods <laughs> um, that you don't end up at the situation where you get to have that kind of match between question and method and epistemology. Um, so if you want to press me on a label, I will label myself. I would call myself a critical realist. Um, I think probably Jill and I have as much in common as we have <laughs> I think that's right. differences um, in many ways. Um, but it's been absolutely fabulous talking about all of this stuff with you, Jill. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for thinking of it. And Jared, thank you for sponsoring us. I I do want to say that I think the advice that you got Anne, was perfect. And this the larger question that in a way we've been talking about without saying the words is the policing of the discipline. And I'm angry that you guys feel like you have been policed into a corner or into the basement or the dungeon. That's not appropriate. That's not good scholarship. Um, I've enjoyed the discussion tremendously. I do think we have much more in common than we disagree on. 
and maybe it's that Chicago thing, which you hated and I loved, I know. <laughs> Jared, thank you for all the great questions and for orchestrating so beautifully. Well, thank you to you both. I mean, I think this is a great start to what I hope will be an ongoing series with the duck and maybe we can have you both back uh, for part two, round two on the end of the Cold War. <laughs> I think we need to um, invite uh, uh, one of these quantitative neo-positivists. Yeah, right. I think that would be fantastic. Um, then we'll really have a uh, cage fight going on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the people who say the only real research is numbers crunching. I've met more than a few, uh, much exactly. to my detriment, unfortunately. Exactly. It's not a pretty sight. No, it's not. Um, this is great, guys. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your insights. And I learned a lot. And I, ho I think our listeners will, too. So I really appreciate it. And thank you to you both also for coming up with this idea in the first place. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can take absolutely no credit for it whatsoever. It's all Anne. She's brilliant. Uh, I, I actually think that... Um the opportunity presented itself. And it's the fact that Jill got me thinking. I love it when someone takes something that you think is obvious and shows you how non-obvious it is. That's one of my favorite things in the world. So thank you for doing that. And thank you, Jared, for being an amazing host. Well, thank you guys. I will see you around. of Minerva.